you would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. 30 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... To fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, 
The flame of the fire killed those men who had took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us insight into your word move us by the same spirit that moved within these three young men lord that we would be faithful unto you even unto death give us the same faith the same love for our god give us the same wisdom from heaven we pray in jesus name amen in the late 1930s, at the height of his power, Joseph Stalin's name was mentioned in a very small provincial meeting on the outskirts of the Soviet Union. As soon as his name was mentioned, it triggered a standing ovation. Everyone in the room stood up just at the bare mention of his name, which led to a, a standing dilemma, because no one wanted to be the first person to sit down given the fact that he would seem less than enthusiastic of a supporter for his dictator. Well, after several minutes had passed, and I mean several, an elderly man finally sat down. He could no longer stand. He took a seat. The other men in the room immediately wrote down his name, and then the next day he was arrested, never to be seen again. True story. Probably one of many like that. Of course, not every government leader is as tyrannical as Stalin was. Nevertheless, every citizen and subject of an empire has to be careful, very careful, in the presence of their king. Proverbs 16, verses 14 and 15, Solomon says this, In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. But a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will seek to appease it. It seems that most of the wise men in Babylon took that as their principle of life. They would do anything to appease King Nebuchadnezzar because they knew what his wrath was like, and so they would continue to appease, appease, appease in order to keep their positions, to be elevated in their positions, as well as to keep their arms and their legs because he was in the habit of threatening dismemberment of anyone who disobeyed his particular edict. 
And now we see in our text this morning, he adds the additional punishment of throwing people into a burning, fiery furnace. Doesn't sound uh, all that appeasing. You'll notice in the text it repeats that nine times. Burning, fiery furnace, burning, fiery furnace, over and over and over again, so that we're not in the least bit uh, forgetful of what the consequence is for disobeying the king's command. Now, as far as the the, the time in which this is occurring, presumably much time has passed since the previous chapter, chapter 2, when Daniel had interpreted the king's dream. If you remember, uh, that was the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, in the Aramaic text, from which our English version comes, it doesn't state any particular date, so we don't know exactly when this occurred. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, adds this in the beginning of the first verse, that is now the 18th year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. If that's true, then this would be 16 years later, which would make sense given the fact that it would have taken quite a bit of time to build this massive statue that the king is requiring everyone to give obeisance to. When you look at the text itself in verse 1, it states that the statue is 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide. How big is that? Well, it depends upon how you measure a cubit. It really depends on who's measuring it. I had to figure this out this week. You wonder what pastors do throughout the week. He gets out his measuring tape and starts measuring what a cubit is. Because according to the definition that's given throughout ancient texts, it's the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. That's what the measure of a cubit is. Now, if Ellen, my wife, is building a building, the cubit would be 17 inches. If I'm measuring a building, a cubit would be 21 and a half inches. It's a big difference in the measurement of a building. So what would happen is, depending upon who was making the standard for a particular region, apparently in the Israel, the, the standard cubit was 17 inches, I'm sorry, 18 inches, whereas the standard cubit in Babylon was 19.8 inches. And presumably, given the fact that this was a statue that was built in Babylon by primarily Babylonians, likely this is a 19.8 inch cubit, which would give the whole statue a 99 foot tall status. So we're talking about a pretty massive statue, right? Not some small potatoes here. Uh, in fact, it wasn't the tallest ancient image in the world, though. You think of uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Colossus of Rhodes, which was built a, a number of years later in 280 B.C., stood at 108 feet tall, so it beat it by an extra nine inches. Uh, interestingly, that statue was made of bronze rather than of gold, which is also interesting given the fact that in chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had seen this image where gold was the, the top part of the statue, and then silver, and then bronze. Bronze was the third kingdom, which is actually the kingdom of Greece, which is what that statue was made out of. Interestingly, side note there. Uh, that one was built in 280 B.C., but it didn't stand for very long. It was destroyed during an earthquake in 226 B.C., only 54 years later, and it was never rebuilt because the oracle of Delphi had told the local inhabitants that the their god, the, the image that was based upon, was upset with them, and that's why the image fell down. So it laid on the ground for 308 years. And people came from all over the world to see just the remains of how huge this statue was. But to give you some perspective, if you go to New York City and you take the Staten Island Ferry and you go around the Statue of Liberty, 
The Statue of Liberty is 111 feet tall, so very similar. If you don't count the base of the, the part that she stands on, as well as her arm with the torch standing up into the sky. Altogether, that would be 300 feet, 305 feet tall. But if you take away her arm and you take away the base, she's pretty much the same height as the image that we're seeing here in this text. Why do I say that? Well, if you've ever been to New York City and you've seen this up close, the measure of her index finger for the Statue of Liberty is eight feet long. So now try to put this in perspective. This is the image that they're told to bow down before and to worship. You can see why it would scare anything out of you in that regard. This is meant to be an intimidating image, something that's meant to overwhelm you. But it's interesting, verse 1, it says that the king set up this image on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now this is actually the second geographical feature that's mentioned in the book of Daniel. The first geographical feature is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that the king of Judah, along with all the royal sons and the treasuries of the temple, were all brought to the land of Shinar. Now, if you put that verse and the one that we're looking at today together, we basically have an image that's being set up on a plain in Shinar. Does that language sound familiar to you at all? Maybe reminiscent of back Genesis chapter 11? Back then, in the plain of Shinar, the wicked gathered together and they built a tower in Babylon. The Tower of Babel, it's known as. Why did they build that tower? So that they could make a name for themselves and so they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the earth. And now it seems that Nebuchadnezzar is doing the exact same thing. He's built this monument, if you will, up into the heavens to make a name for himself and so that his kingdom would not be scattered. In fact, if he were to make the image based upon his dream, the one that Daniel rightly interpreted for him, he would have made it out of gold and then silver and then bronze and then iron and clay. And then maybe have put a rock beside it as well, showing what the future intention of God is in reference to this kingdom. And instead, he makes the whole image out of gold, signifying, I'm not going anywhere. This is my kingdom and it's going to last forever. And then he gathers all the nations, all the leaders from around the world to come and worship this statue to prove that it is in fact he who is the God that they should bow down to, if you will. Even though I'd say probably he named the statue and made it to be in uh, worship to a particular God, probably the God Nebo, after which he is named Nebuchadnezzar. It's one of the Babylonian gods. I wouldn't be surprised in the least if the statue actually looked a little bit like him. So there's sort of a combination between this God and, and who it is. But you'll notice in this particular case uh, that in the previous chapter, Daniel had made a point of telling the king that it was God who had set up the king to be the ruler over all the world. God had put Nebuchadnezzar where he is. And it's a word that's used a number of times in the previous chapter. God set you up to be the king. But in this chapter, the same, same word is used over and over again in the Aramaic nine times to say this is the statue or the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. So in other words, in the original language, it's showing, he's saying in, some, in so many words, God didn't set me up, I set gods up. You follow me? King Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying he makes his own gods, gods do not make him. And through that, he's making a statement, a very bold statement, that's rejecting every aspect of Daniel's vision. 
Again, do not think for a minute that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar has become a worshiper of God. Uh, rather, he has rejected all of this. Again, it's like, go back to that parable. The birds, he hears the word of God, the birds come and immediately eat the seed, and he has no idea the meaning of it at all. Verses 2 through 7, the king sends out this order to gather all the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, justice magistrates. He makes all this long list of them, says it two or three times. But in this case, you're imagining hundreds, if not thousands of men from all around the world gathered for this particular occasion, and all of a sudden this herald begins to cry out in a very loud voice, saying, everyone, once the music starts, you're to come and you're to worship this image, right? And then immediately threatening them that if they do not, what happens? Burning, fiery furnace, which he repeats again and again. And to add to the solemnity of the occasion, uh, we're, we're also mentioning that there's this choir director, if you will, or orchestra director who's leading all of these different instruments uh, that, again, it mentions all those instruments a number of times as well, just to give you the massiveness of this uh, pageantry, if you will. In fact, it reminds me quite a bit of how Hitler had choreographed every aspect of his rallies. I mean, from the music to the symbols, all meant to instill fear of his authority. And then even the lighting itself, he would have these spotlights that would shine down upon him to make him look like he was larger than life. So that you would, you would be afraid. And you would do what he said. You would worship in that regard. I was making fun this week because four times I think I've been asked about the new lighting that we're going to have in the sanctuary. And what kind of lighting I want. And I said, I think I'm going to stay out of the lighting category altogether just in case people think that I'm trying to make myself look large. I'm already large enough to begin with, so I don't think I need that. But the, the key theme here, and this is what we're meant to see, and this is the two words that are brought up again and again in this chapter, the words worship and service. The key idea is that who is it that we're called to worship? Who is it that we're called to serve? There are going to be people all around us in the culture that want us to join in their chorus and to sing the same songs they're singing, to worship in the same way they're worshiping. But the Scripture makes it very plain that we're to worship the one true God. Now again, as you might expect, the, the vast majority of participants that are there on that particular day, those who are in attendance, they have no issue with this whatsoever. Most of them come from a pagan background. They're, they're polytheist. They're going to worship many gods. What's one more god? Who cares? You know, we can bow down, whatever. You know, it's no big deal. Maybe he'll give us a blessing uh, if we do what the king is saying. There's, no, there's really what harm could be done. Even if someone did have a problem with it, they still didn't want to lose their arms and legs. They still didn't want to be thrown into a burning fire furnace. So what's the big deal? You just bow down and do what everybody else is doing. I mean, really, I mean, even when times of persecution come in various countries, a lot of, a lot of people that profess Christianity are like, well, what's the big deal? You bow your, you bow your knee and cross your fingers. It doesn't mean anything, right? That's what most people say. It's as King Henry IV once supposedly said, when he converted from Protestantism to Catholicism in 1593, I won't try to say it to you in French, but in English it reads this way, Paris is well worth a mass. Paris is well worth a mass, suggesting that if he converted to Catholicism, he solidified his reign and got to keep the city of Paris. Is Paris well worth a mass? In the same way these men are gathering in Babylon, is it worth bowing down and worshiping a false god in order to keep your job as one of the leaders in Babylon or even to keep your own life? In verses 8 through 12, we see that Daniel's three friends that we know as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah 
would not bow down and worship this image. Now, we don't know exactly how this took place. Perhaps they weren't noticed at first, perhaps because they're a little bit elevated than some of the other people that are there. Maybe they're standing behind them and not everybody notices it, so they get away with it, of not bowing down and worshiping. But the local Chaldeans, those who were not elevated and and were jealous of these Jews, did notice and immediately took down notes similar to what Stalin's men did when the old man sat down. But where are Daniel and the rest of the Jews? That's a question that's always brought up in this text. I, I imagine I've always sort of pictured Daniel sitting in the box seats, if you will, up above with the king. You know, he's somehow he's not a part of the, 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 the rabble down below that they're having to go through this motion. More than likely, the king himself is not bowing down to this idol. You know, the hypocrisy of government leaders, right? You've got to bow down, but I'm not going to. More than likely, Daniel's not in that uh, required to do it like everybody else is in that regard. But what about the rest of the Jews? For some reason or another, Scripture's not focusing on them at, at this point. The spotlight at this moment is on these three young men. And how are they going to respond to this particular decree? Again, what's the big deal? Why don't they just bow down like everyone else? Why can't they just do it, cross their fingers? Well, for the Jews back then and for Christians today... I'd say it's a, it's a matter that's addressed very plainly in the law of God. It's very plainly referenced in the Ten Commandments, right? The, the very first command, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the very second command, you're not to make uh, an image of God in any shape or form on earth. You're not to bow down to it. You're not to give it worship. But why? Because God is a jealous God. And he punishes this type of disobedience greatly. Do you know that in the law of God, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7, as well as Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, it, it, it explains it this way, that when you bow down to an idol, you're actually bowing down to a demon. The way Moses describes it is that there's a demon standing behind the statue, if you will. The, the statue may mean nothing in, in and of itself, but there's a spirituality involved in this in which you're actually giving worship to Satan. And that makes sense because in Matthew chapter 4, if you remember when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan says exactly, come and bow down to me. Give me worship and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. In other words, you will be able to be the king. Just come and bow down and worship me. And what does he say? Be gone from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Very exclusive, right? In this particular instance in Babylon, no demons can be seen running around, right? We know that. We also know that more than likely the king himself is not all that concerned that people really love the god Nebo or any other god for that matter. That's really not his concern. It's not really about the religion for him. It's about him being able to control the mindset of all the people. Even the Chaldeans, if you remember, who are accusing the Jews of not bowing down. Do you think they really care about the god Nebo? No. They just hate these three young men who have been elevated above them. Most of the time, what you need to understand about persecution in regards to Christianity, it's often not about our faith from the worldly perspective. It's simply we won't give in to whatever it is that everyone else is doing. It's whatever the culture is doing. We decide to do something slightly different, and the world hates us because of it. It's not because they really care who we worship. Always know that. You'll notice that even in, I pointed this out a number of times, even when the Jews that were very upset, that were living in the the region of Galilee, they were upset with Jesus and wanted him to leave their town, not because of his faith, but because 
Basically, he killed all their pigs. They were concerned about the pigs that died for him to save the one person who was possessed by demons. It had nothing to do with what he was teaching. It had to do with power and money and position. That's often where persecution comes from. And that's why you'll find oftentimes it's not just Christians that are persecuted. People of all types of faiths, of all types of political persuasions are persecuted because it always comes down to the same thing, the bottom line. Money, power, even the way these things happen today. You see, there's no difference. But in in verses 13 through 15, in a rage, when Nebuchadnezzar hears this news that these men have not bowed down and worshipped this image, he commands them to come before him. And uh, you'll notice that when he asks them, is this true, did you not bow down, he doesn't give them a chance to answer. He assumes they're not stupid enough to disobey his commands. And then he sort of says, now, if you're ready... (laughs) It's time to do it, so let's just see you do it. You know, it's like he, he brings another whole, he brings the orchestra together one more time just so they can bow down and do it just like everyone else has done. And when they don't immediately say, yes, sir, he also throws out that punishment again, burning, fiery furnace, he adds. But then he says additionally, and who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? You know, perhaps their God can interpret dreams, but surely he can't deliver you out of my hands. If he could, then you wouldn't be here in the first place as my slaves, now would you? You see, he thinks he has an upper hand here, literally. And as a result, he throws it in their face. Now, this is the apex of the story, right? The, the very pinnacle of this chapter, verses 16 through 18. These three young men respond to his threat, saying this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I think it's important for us to get this fact that as confident as these young men seem to be in this particular conversation, They had no guarantee that the Lord was going to save them out of this. They had no idea. And I think uh, that sometimes puts them in a position where we might begin to wonder, you know, did they fully believe that he could save them out of it? I mean, it, it seems as if they do believe that he could save them. And also they had hoped that he would save them. But notice that they left room for God's will in the matter, admitting that maybe he would not save them and that they would indeed perish in the fire. Either way, the, 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 the point of this is they're saying, well, we're not going to serve your gods either way, right? It wasn't that we know God's going to save us no matter what, but rather, even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your gods. Now, it's interesting. I, I've, I've talked with a number of Christians who have a hard time with this concept, with this particular type of statement, even if it's not them saying it, but other Christians who have said something similar. When they say something like, I'm praying that God would do this, but even if he doesn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to his will. You know, it's sort of like Jesus saying, take the cross away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Right? It, some people think it's a cop-out to say something like that. It's not at all. It's leaving room for God to do what he wants, whether he wants to deliver or not, whether he wants to save or not. I, I, I go back again and again to the New Testament. You remember when Peter was imprisoned? And the whole church was praying for him. And you remember how the angel came in the night and opened the, the, the doors of the prison 
and he was freed. And what a, what, a, what a blessing, what a miracle that was. Everyone got to see the evidence of their prayers being answered. Great story. But then what about his fellow disciple, James, who also was in prison and then was executed within days later? Well, if we have this mentality, we might think, well, I guess the church didn't pray for him. Can you imagine the church? Well, we're going to pray for Peter. We don't really like James as much. That's not the case. Obviously, they prayed for James the same way. But they had to leave room for God. What would God decide to do? Would he save? Would he not save? Would he deliver? Would he not deliver? Would he heal? Would he not heal? I mean, how many times, even as elders, we have gathered together, we've laid hands on people, prayed for them that they would be healed. And praise God, some of those people have had some miraculous healings. But then other times, we've prayed for them, and they died. Did we not pray enough for them? Did we not pray hard enough for them? Were we lacking faith? I think if you, if you interpret this in that way, I, I think you're missing the whole point. We're always leaving room for God. He may choose to save. He may not. He may choose to heal. He may not. But either way, we will serve the Lord our God. Amen? Amen. That's where the faith comes in, you see. Our faith is not he always saves, always delivers, always heals, but rather that God is faithful to us, his will will be revealed. We'll wait upon the Lord. I mean, it's like the disciples, the apostles said, Acts chapter 5, if you remember, the Sanhedrin were threatening them and saying, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus and under threat of punishment. They said this, we must obey God rather than men, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstance. Jesus himself said to them in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, he says what? Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that statement actually brings up a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Why is it so evil for King Nebuchadnezzar to throw his enemies into a burning, fiery furnace if God himself threatens people with hell? A lot of unbelievers have a really hard time with this concept. God seems to be more tyrannical than Nebuchadnezzar does because he's going to throw them into a hell forever. How is God just and Nebuchadnezzar not? It's a great question. Again, I'm really glad you brought it up. In the New Testament passages that we read earlier that David was reading to us, Matthew 13, Christ describes his kingdom in a number of ways through these parables. A couple of them, parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. In both cases, at the time of the judgment, Jesus said the good will be separated from the bad, whether it's the wheat from the weeds or the good fish from the bad fish. And in both cases, he says the bad will be thrown into the fiery furnace. He says there will be a time of accounting, a time of judgment, in which the good will be rewarded, the bad will be punished. Now, is that something that we should think that that's a wrong thing to do? In Romans 13, we're told very plainly that God has given the power of the sword to the state for this reason, to reward the good and to punish the wicked. This is actually something that was given by God to every nation on earth. Even the concept of capital punishment itself is not an evil work. If carried out in the right manner, it's a way to punish the wicked and then to give justice to the good. 
It's a way of reflecting God's perfect judgment because that's exactly what's going to happen on the final day. There is a day of accounting in which the evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace. It makes it very plain in that regard. But since Nebuchadnezzar is not a godly man, he doesn't have a godly or a good reason for throwing people into the fiery furnace except for personally slighting him for disobeying his commands that are evil in and of themselves. You see, it's not the problem of throwing someone into the fiery furnace. The king has the right to kill anyone anyhow, anyhow he pleases. They're his subjects. But in this particular case, it's because he's wicked himself and is throwing them in for the wrong reasons. He's not throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace. He wants to throw the good into the fiery furnace. So when we get to verses 20 and 23, we see that he calls upon some of his mighty men. If you remember, David had mighty men. So it's some of the the, the best warriors, the, the strongest men he has, if you will. They're the ones who are literally picking up these three young men and throwing them into the furnace. Again, we don't know exactly how this uh, furnace was constructed, but you can imagine there's a part at the top where they're throwing them down into the furnace, and yet there's some sort of window, if you will, down below in which the king can look and see what's going on inside. Of course, at this point, people are asking, well, why would they have such a large furnace to begin with? Where do you think they did all the smelting of the gold to make this huge statue? This furnace was probably constructed just for this image, and so it's, it's pretty free now to do other things. And he was going to get his use out of it. And as a result, he has this furnace heated seven times hotter than before that was sort of commensurate with how hot he is in himself for having been slighted. You know, in fact, it's, it's interesting, again, in, in the Aramaic, the way it describes uh, the image that he has built looks, you know, very majestic where it says, his own image now turns sour because he doesn't get what he wants. He's like this big baby, if you will. His image is like, you didn't do what I want, so I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. The, the strangest part of the story, though, as you know, is this fourth figure that shows up. As soon as they're thrown in, uh, the, the king is watching. He wants to see. He wants to see justice brought about for these men who have slighted him. Strangely enough, the, the only thing that's burning are the ropes that they were tied with. Immediately, they're free. They can move around. And then this fourth figure shows up that in verse 25, the king says, looks like a son of the gods. In other words, he looks divine. Now, he doesn't clarify how he looked like the son of gods. We don't have a a description of any kind. But uh, we see that instead, he's not focusing on the description, but rather uh, Daniel's focusing on King Nebuchadnezzar's math skills. He's like, one, two, Three, four, does it again, four, and it's almost as if the king doesn't even remember how many threw in there because he was so impetuous in how quickly he threw them in. Was there a fourth guy we threw in there? And immediately, of course, his other advisors say, yeah, it's just three. And he says, well, look inside, there's a fourth guy in there. And he looks like a son of the gods. Now, who that figure is, the scholars are divided on, as you can imagine. Because in verse 28, king, the king says he's an angel. Verse 25, he says he's like God, which is a... Well, even if it were an angel, it would be carrying out God's will. So there certainly wouldn't be anything wrong with that particular interpretation. But I would lean more toward a pre-incarnate image of Christ, given this reason. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, if you remember, God reveals himself to Moses where? 
in a burning bush. And in that burning bush, he makes this promise to Moses and his people, for Israel for the years to come. He says, I will be with you through the midst of this difficult time of bondage, persecution, etc. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, uh, Moses recounts this uh, escape, this exodus, by saying, the Lord himself has taken you and has brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. Of course, most of you know the, the, the famous passage in Isaiah 43 where the Lord says, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It seems to me it's a very personal promise he's making to his people. He could have used an angel. It seems to me that he, he, he's speaking that he himself will come and walk with them through the fire. Regardless of your interpretation, the fourth figure disappears. And then King Nebuchadnezzar calls three, three young men to come out of the furnace. In fact, it's the same language that's used in the Greek when Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. Come out, he says. Notice in verse 26 that when he calls them out, he uses their Babylonian names. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. But then he immediately gives them this title, servants of the Most High God, which is sort of counterproductive because he's just called them servants of Nebo and, and other gods of the Babylonian deities. And then he sort of overrules that by now calling them servants of a God who's higher than all these other gods, the servant of the most high God. Now let me remind you that the king asked the question earlier on saying, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And then out of his own mouth he says, it's the most high God who has delivered you out of my hands. Better than any Babylonian God. So they emerge from the fire, they come out, and immediately they're surrounded by all the king's officials and prefects and all these guys that are, that are looking at them and they're observing them. They see that not a, not a single hair on their head was singed, not a fiber on their clothing was burned. They don't even smell like smoke. If they hadn't seen these three men thrown into the furnace with their own eyes, they wouldn't have believed that they had been anywhere near a furnace. And as a result of this great miracle, the king praises the God of the Jews for delivering his servants from his own wrath. Again, don't assume for a minute that the Nebuchadnezzar has believed in this God. Notice how he calls this particular God. He says, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has saved them. He doesn't say anything like, my God and my Lord. Still refers to him as a God of these Jews. Nevertheless, he still is acknowledging the fact that their names make no sense whatsoever. They're empty names because they're not worshiping Nebo or any of these other gods, but rather worshiping the one true God. So as you see, the, as he's wrapping up the end of the story, we see the king is, is blessing them and their God calling down a curse upon any who speaks against them. And then he goes back to dismembering people again. It's like anybody who bothers to say anything about their God, let's cut off their arms and legs and burn down their houses and make it a dunghill. And then he promotes these three men to even higher status, which probably would just add more persecution. But strangely enough, these men are never heard from ever again. They're not mentioned anywhere after this in the book of Daniel. We don't know um, 
It's just not meant for us to know the rest of their story. The last thing we hear about them is actually in the book of Hebrews 11, verse 34, where it simply says that through faith they quench the violence of fire. That's the last we hear of them. Of course, they're, they're meant to be examples for us to follow, that we would worship the one true God alone, and we would stand up to what the world around us is trying to force us into in that regard. Uh, at one point in the 1940s, the, the KJB was sent to a number of churches throughout the Soviet Empire to observe their Sunday morning worship services. And in one particular case, uh, one of these agents saw a woman in a Russian Orthodox church bowing down to a statue of Christ, kissing his feet. I don't recommend doing that, but nevertheless, that's what she was doing. But I loved her response when he asked her, he says, Babushka, which means grandma, Grandma, are you prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved General Secretary of our great Communist Party? And her response was this, Why, of course, but only if you crucify him first. <laughs> Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell. Which again, would lead me back to why I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ who's not only helping them through their fiery trial, but saving them from the fire itself. The truth of the matter is, we don't stand before King Nebuchadnezzar as our rightful ruler. We stand before the God of all the universe, the King who has made us, who declared us to be rebels in his sight for sinning against a holy God. Right? All it takes is one sin Adam and Eve committed that made them rebels against God's holy rule. And what is the consequence of that? What does the Scripture teach us about that? It says very plainly that on that final day, all traitors to his kingdom, all rebels will be thrown into the lake of fire that will burn forever and ever. He's completely just in doing that. Completely just. And there's only one person who can change the image of his face to where that wrath will not be poured out upon us. Only one. On that particular day, there's no begging and pleading that would change it. There's no amount of good works that you could ever do that would, he would accept. Nothing of that nature. For then it will be the time of, of judgment. It's interesting, this, uh, I have a class that's coming up here in, in uh, January on the Dutch Further Reformation. And some of the books that I have to read are in Dutch. I don't know Dutch. So I started learning Dutch to see if I could figure out what in the world they're saying. Thankfully, the professor is going to translate some of them for us. But I, I've been on Duolingo, as you can imagine, trying to learn Dutch. And uh, I love the fact that uh, when you go into a restaurant to eat your meal afterwards, uh, you don't ask for your bill. Waiter, give me, give me my bill. Instead, literally, you ask you for the waiter to bring you the reckoning. It literally says, bring my the, the reckoning, something like that. Sounds pretty tough. Bring me the reckoning, you know, in that regard. But literally it means bring, settle my accounts, right? I, I need to settle my accounts. You know, the Bible refers to the day of judgment as a day of reckoning. This is the day in which all accounts will be settled and then everyone has to pay what they owe. The problem is the currency that God takes you don't have. You can't pay what you owe because he needs something that's cleaner than the filthy lucre that you have in your pockets. There's nothing that you can offer God to save your own soul. Nothing. No matter how many good works you've done, 
God will not accept that at all. I don't know who came up with the expression, there's no free lunch. They're absolutely wrong. There is a meal, if you will, that God has paid for completely. And when the reckoning comes, he's already paid in full. Praise be to God. The same God who throws the wicked into the burning, fiery furnace has given us a Savior who has already walked through the fire in our place. Who changes the image of his own Father's face from anger to that of a smile, to that of a blessing, a great blessing. All because someone simply knows the Lord Jesus Christ and has believed in him repented of their sins and said, Lord, I don't deserve anything but this fiery furnace. But thank you, Jesus. You've come to save me. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we give thanks that he has indeed laid down his life for sinners of whom I am the foremost. We thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, while still weak in sin and unable to pay our bill, that on the cross Jesus paid it all. Crying out, it is finished. You've done it all, Lord. There's nothing we can add to it, no good works that you would accept, no money that you would take from us. But Lord, you said, come, buy and eat. It's all free. Lord, help us to trust in, in the Lord Jesus Help us to live for him this side of heaven, Lord, as the, the world around us continues to try to conform us to its image, to make us accept its standard of living, to accept its standard of, of what is right and wrong, to accept its standard for how to, uh, to make a good life. Lord, help us to, to know first and foremost that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live for you, we pray.